Hey Skin and welcome to Skin Things. You may notice this episode is a bit different to the previous ones. I launched a documentary series on Absolute Radio called The Blackness of Rock. Uh, what you're about to hear is an episode of that, but a podcast version, so I hope you like it. Enjoy. Over the past few weeks, you may have heard I've been trying to trace the history of rock and race, speaking to some of my favourite artists and a range of very interesting people about some of the debates surrounding the blackness of rock. Last week, I had a great conversation with Pauline Black about her experience with Two-Tone and the Scar revival. And this week, I wanted to focus on the Black Rock story in the 80s and my own experiences in the 90s. That's why I enlisted the help of my friend, Living Colours, Vernon Reed. What's I think those early days? Because... The difference between, I think, America and England is you already had a founding blackness to rock. In England, we didn't have that. So we was much more of a divorce thing. So you had something you could kind of, kind of come out of. And then you still had to suffer, <laughs> you know, at the yeah. end of the industry. So what was it like in those early days? It was a challenge. It was a real challenge. And the, those challenges came from quarters that you wouldn't expect. The challenges came from both sides of the racial idea. So the challenges were from black people who misidentified rock as a white art form. So it's a misidentification from the black side. And on the white side, it was blackness and rock was a historical artifact, that it was frozen history. And there was a kind of homage to the roots of rock. It was kind of like you gave us the baton and that's kind of it. So both sides kind of, okay, this is now white youth's music. And my contention is that blackness in rock is a continuum, that it never ended. You know, when I think about Arthur Lee and Love, when I think of the Isley Brothers, right? The Isley Brothers, they had hits like, who's that lady? Fight the power, you know, Summer Breeze. You know, they had guitar were prominent. In, yes. the, in the 70s. So the fact that they had this this connection, this direct connection to Jimi Hendrix. When I was a boy coming up listening to radio, Who's That Lady was a big hit, and it was a hit on R&B stations. So rock, that sound of the guitar, survived past the untimely passing of Jimi Hendrix mm. and was a viable commercial entity. When I mm. think of my first concert I ever went to, was Funkadelic at Madison Square Garden. For me, it was um, seeing George Clinton, part of Funkadelic, at Mother's Finest, Brixton Academy. You know, when they played, as I, when I was a Beto kid, that for me was kind of a direct connection. And that's kind of the foundation where Stankinetti kind of came out of. It was that bluesy, psychedelic kind of thing. Absolutely. Uh, So you're exactly right. And the thing is, I don't identify with the idea that rock music is not part of my identity as a black person or African-American person. I don't identify. There's a supposed alienation, right, that we're supposed to be plagued by. Like, people don't get it. See, we don't accept the premise that rock is not black. We don't accept the premise. So when people come at us with all of that, it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, yeah. literally, you talk about, like, whiteness as some kind of inherent component of rock music. 
I actually don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's to me, it's the Heisley Brothers. It's Funkadelic. It's Edwin Birdsong. It's War. It's Santana. It's Sly and the Family Stone. It's Arthur Lee Love. And also, I remember when we were starting, you know, some of my biggest detractors were also Black people. You know, why you're not playing music of your color and your creed? And I'm like, but know your history because it's, it's our history. It's our history. That's one of the things that has come up in, in the Blackness of Rock, this documentary, over and over again. I talked to Maureen Mann, and what was interesting about what she was saying, because she really defined that one point. And she said, well, it was the Beatles. Because before the Beatles came along, you had Motown, you had all this, you know, rock was still a black thing. Black music was pop music. It wasn't R&B music and it's black music. Black music was just pop music. Along comes the Beatles and suddenly the white kids are like, oh, this is ours and this is rock. And suddenly you have this genre of separation. Here's the thing about the Beatles. The Beatles were initially signed to an R&B label. Yep. They had been re- the Beatles had been rejected by all the white pop labels. So there's actually two versions of I Want to Hold Your Hand. I Want to Hold Your Hand was released on their original label, which was an R&B label, and Capitol bought out their contract and re-released I Want to Hold Your Hand. So a lot of this stuff is about history and it's yeah. about unknown hidden history, unknown history, alternate histories. You know what I mean? And this is the thing. And the Beatles figure big in my evolution as a musician, because I remember the Beatles coming on the Ed Sullivan show. And wow. what and this was, the Beatles broke the United States out of a terrible malaise because Kennedy was assassinated in 63. That's right, yeah. And the Beatles break out in 65, right? They break, they show up in 65. And right around that time is the beginning of Stax and the beginning of Motown. So the music kind of, almost saved the nation. And music was an engine of all of the tumult, the anti-war, civil rights, you know, a change is going to come. All of that was part of the engine that fired up the people. That's why, you know, that's why Martha and the Vandellas, Jagu was trying to investigate, you know, dancing in the streets. Dancing in the streets freaked everyone out because they thought it was cold. So that's that's how freaked out the mainstream or the political conservative mainstream was by the explosion of the youth movement of music. So it's all of a piece. At a certain point, Hendrix has started. Okay, so one of the things, people were calling him all kinds of names, right? They were saying, oh, he's a black, white boy, whatever, da, da, da. But you know, Hendrix was really black. And I'll tell you why I say that. There's no black, no white boys coming up with boom child. Like, that's not happening, right? <laughs> He went from the thrub into outer space. He was like full-on roots and full-on science fiction. So you got Wooden Child on the one hand and 1983, A Merman I Should Turn to Be on the Mm. other side. So Hendrix was a vision, was a young visionary artist. Very much so. Another thing that people don't really really realize, talk about like a Little Richard, right? Little Richard in terms of so many dimensions. I mean, the LGBTQ is an icon. He was a kind of spiritual apostate. You know, he's straight out, out the church. But a lot of people don't know that he was Sister Rosetta Tharp's protege. Like, yeah. He was a big fan of Sister Rosetta Tharp. And Sister yeah. Rosetta Tharp has been written out of guitar history, right? Because it's like, it's kind of like you go, Charles Christian, Chuck Berry, B.B. King, Jimmy Hendrix. It's, it's a time like that. Sister Rosetta Tharp has been cut out. And oh, Sister Rosetta Tharp 
And like, I was ignorant of like, and when you hear Sister Rosetta Tharp, her guitar playing, she's like, right? Yeah. Like of Chuck Berry. Like, you got to look at her. She rocked it, but then cats didn't talk about it because it's a dude thing. You know what I mean? You started the Black Rock Coalition with Greg Tate. I mean, why did you feel that it was really important to start the coalition? What were the well, founding reasons at the time? So I will tell you the story of the founding of the coalition is funny because all of this was because I had an early kind of living color gig that not well attended. And I went to see my friend, I and I, and their band, that gig was like, there was no, the band was amazing. It was crushing it, right? I just made a round of phone calls and got a bunch of my friends. I said, can we get together? And they call some people. And it was about maybe 20 of us, whatever we got. To. And I was like, yo, is it me? And they were like, no, you're not crazy. It was Greg K. He said, well, what are we going to do about it? What are they going to do about it? So, so it was kind of more like a group therapy session. And we were so talking about our experiences in the clubs. And we're talking about the mid-80s. And I can't even describe the ecology of clubs that were just thriving in New York at that time. It was amazing. There was a whole ecosystem of clubs where you could go from being unsigned. And that's why CBGBs was so important. The CBGBs were Talking Heads, Blondie, all these bands. Like CBGBs is an essential component. And, you know, Hilly Crystal, God rest him. I give Hilly Crystal a huge debt of gratitude to him because that was how Living Color built the following. He booked us again and again and again. So this is a thing about the combination of race, but also people whose love of music transcended. It was a bunch of like-minded people that got together. So he put on the first Black Rock festivals and things like that. He booked those bands, you know, and uh, he booked I and I, you know, I and I eventually got signed to Epic as well, because, you know, Living Color had come out, we did that. And then it was a trickle though. That's the problem. We got a lot of rejection. Our existence as bands, as prepares of music and ideas, we represent a kind of existential threat to the construct of whiteness, right? So we don't even realize what the stakes are, right? For us, it's we just want to play some music. Simple as that. We just want to play music. We just want to play, right? For the people that, that run the levers and the controls and the buttons, this is a threat to their existence. Yeah. And that's the difference. On a certain level, we also expand and threaten the parameters of Blackness, right? So people say, is this? And we say, is this? I definitely feel what you're saying because it was definitely for us. We see that in certain areas, it's been a conscious decision not to play Skunkanancy, not to accept uh, Skunkanancy. I would say that it's the people that made Skunkanancy successful, not the industry. Absolutely. We do it in spite of. It's yeah. our role, not because of. I'm really grateful to Mick Jagger and the Stones. So for Living Color to get signed, Mick Jagger is almost inarguably, specifically at that time period, Mick Jagger is the most famous person in rock and roll. Mm -hmm. So in other words, in order for Living Color to be signed, to just get a contract, it took the most famous person in rock and roll to endorse us. Yeah. If you think about that, 
other bands, the A&R man is doing his job. He sees a band. They got a following. The band gets signed. You go up to the club. The club is packed. People enjoy the music. Well, you, you know, throw it against the wall and see what sticks, right? We got total resistance. We got our demos stood, and people will go to the club and they will see the club was packed, right? The fact that it took the most famous person <laughs> in the genre for us to get a contract is racism of the highest order. Absolutely. That, and I say that with a huge amount of affection for the Stones and a huge amount of affection for Mick Jagger for what he did for us. My point is about the industry. Like, yeah. it was like, in order for that to happen, it took all of this, right? And only one company, Epic, they kind of went for. In your kind of experience and with your learned brain and all the things that you've been through, what's the one major lesson that you've learned? that you would like to pass on? So one thing is trust your feelings about things. If you're writing song, the first Living Color song is Funny Why, really. From the first album. And it's really just about our reaction to a racist incident. You know, a little old lady. And I, and I, I think about that little old lady with fondness. You know, like she, poor thing. I got on, you know, I got on with my dread sticky straight up and she grabbed her handbag. And I, I must have terrified her. You know what I mean? And the thing is, I was so enraged by her reaction that I wrote this, wow, this, I know I'm not going to rob you. I mean, you know what I mean? Because of this thing, right? And this situation that we find ourselves in, and the microaggressions and the gaslighting and all of the stuff that's going on, you know what? Don't be afraid to take it on and speak on it. Don't be afraid to take it on. Like the thing about race and Baldwin really hits the directly is that People that think of it as, as just, hey, you are so missing what this is, what we're caught in. You're so missing what we're caught in. What we're caught in is vile. It's <laughs> disturbing. And when I say vile, I mean that in the way only, the only, the only the way that someone you love can be vile. Right? Yeah. That's, like, it's, it has produced children, right? It's produced suffering, pain, death. It's also produced children who are confused, who are trying to figure out how they fit in. Baldwin says, this happened to us because these people can't face their pain. But the trauma and the triumph, those things are what has shaped us over time. And it's like Coltrane, he wasn't trying to rescue just Black people with his horn, right? What Jimi Hendrix was talking about with the Star Spangled Banner, when your vocals hit that soaring point, when I'm standing next to Corey and we're doing open letter to a landlord, we're part of something greater than ourselves. When we go on stage and we bring the power and the glory, that noise, right? We are part of something grand. And this is something I will say to everybody that's got a dream like this. We are all connected and we're part of something magnificent. And don't let anybody tell you anything different. This is something so great because we had so many fallen. We've had so many people. Like I think about Little Red Corvette. That's the kind of song I ever heard. And I just, I remember standing watching the TV on MTV going, <gasps> what right? is it? You know, I, had my, I was at my little part-time job and Dr. Fonzie let me have a little radio and Little Red Corvette kept me going. So when I think 
the idea that one of our songs has kept somebody going, that's a great honor. And, you know, it's you've kept me going, you know, through weird times. I'm going to tell you straight up, you know, Thanks. so this is uh, fantastic. Brilliant, Vernon Reed. There, always a pleasure to speak to. Um, I've still got one more episode of the Blackness of Rock to play for you, and it's all about the current and the future of Black Rock. So stick around for that. Mm-hmm.